How's the boat treating you? It is treating us great. Are you you starting to feel better, Alex? Yeah, I, yeah. I feel like I'm uh, the the trip to Florida uh, spruced me up, so we're back in we're back in Connecticut now, and uh, yeah, we got the dreary weather behind us. Oh, uh, uh, doing all right, doing all right. Yeah, working on the Elixir Patterns book. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome back to Beam Radio, where we cover the Elixir and Erlang ecosystem. I would like to introduce our hosts for today, Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. And Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody from The Loop, this time Savannah, Georgia. And I'm Lars Rikman. And as always, we want to hear from our lovely sponsor, Groxio. Bruce, what's up at Groxio? Gremlins, gremlins are up. We've had a, uh, a few technical hurdles to work through. So um, won't bore you with all the details, but it starts with a, a dead computer and a emergency replacement at the MacBook store and um, some forced upgrades that ate some of our key settings for <laughs> exporting videos. So we finally worked through that. So we ought to be releasing our first set of live book videos. Um, and those should be coming out probably about the time that this is published. So Livebook is next. We're going to talk about using Livebook and, and some of the technologies within it that make that easy to do. And Bruce, it's your time to pull a topic. What do you have for us? Yeah, so today we're going to go with upping your Elixir game. So as I've talked to people that listen to Beam Radio, a whole lot of them are either learning Elixir or are intermediate developers really looking to improve what they're doing in the Elixir space. So I thought it would be a good chance to kind of plug some of the great work that's going on around the Elixir community and some of it's going on in this room. So what I'd like to do is kind of go through a couple of prompts. And then as we go through those, we'll get a chance to talk about your favorite books and conference talks and things like that. How does that sound? Let's do it. Okay, so the first thing I'd like to do is ask you both a couple of questions. First to Lars, what was it like learning Elixir for you? So for me, that all started while I was trying to wrangle a homegrown microservice architecture, distributed system. Not, It didn't have to be as complex as it was, but it was trying to solve problems that we didn't have uh, at the sort of upfront design phase. So it was a traditional, the big 2.0 system. Um, and I got introduced to Elixir at that time by, by a, my CTO at the time, who came from the Ruby space and knew Elixir from there. And what I saw was a system that spoke to a bunch of the challenges we were having and also did a bunch of cool stuff. And I'm, I'm easily impressed with cool stuff. So that led me into looking into it. And my approach to learning things has always been grab the first tutorial you find that seems reasonable, try to follow it roughly, uh, leave the path frequently and backtrack whenever it stops working. Um, that's how I learned Python and Django. That's how I learned Elixir and Phoenix. But I also spend a lot of time sort of daydreaming about wanting to 
to build with it because I couldn't use it in my day job at the time. So a lot of conference talks and that's sort of where I discovered nerves and stuff. And actually learning the language was something where I just sat down and tried to build things. And I started sort of with a Phoenix project the first few times and just tried to build something with it and generally had decent success. And then I just absorbed language from there. And that well, in that I leaned on sort of the basic Elixir docs, the Phoenix docs, and the guide on both uh, Elixir and the Phoenix page to sort of yes. start grokking gen servers and OTP and that stuff. I think I spent some extra time where I just read the those parts of the Elixir guide documentation, so the intro guide, and just read through those without actually doing them, just to just to sort of. Uh, internalize the ideas but then it's been a ton of doing that's typically how i how i learn yeah so that's a that's an interesting take and and i think that a lot of people get some early introductions to elixir by being introduced to it by a friend and then kind of wanting to know more and then going to the online resources and unlike a lot of new languages elixir has always been really good in the areas of having great starting tutorials. And, and so what are some of the resources that we see in those space? I mean, we, there's obviously two huge ones, right? So the, the first one is the Elixir language documentation, the set of tutorials that you can kind of open IEX and, and walk through those. And by the way, I think that those will be excellent in, in a live book someday. And um, and the second one is Elixir School. It kind of is is a next level, the next step of of a dive into a lot of these topics. So, what are some of the great free resources as as you started as you initially started your dive into Elixir? And this is a question for both of you. Where can people go to learn Elixir when they're new at it? I think one of the things that really made it click for me as like, a, you know, I really need to learn this technology and, and, uh, and get a handle on it. Or a lot of the conference talks, I think this is around like 2015, 2016. So, you know, a lot of talks by, uh, you know, Dave Thomas, Jose Valim, um, Chris McCord. And so it, it's always nice to put that stuff on in the background as you're like, you know, I don't know, cutting onions, cooking dinner, doing whatever. And even though the majority of that stuff will go over your head, uh, just as you're, you know, trying to understand this new language, the runtime, all that stuff, you you still pick up, you know, pieces here and there, and you say, okay, this is worth it because you know of whatever's being talked about in that conference talk, and I, that that's usually a good way to you know dangle a carrot in front of your face and say, okay, I need to I need to get to the point where I can leverage this because look how look how awesome it is. Look what just you know look what Chris McCord just did on stage. I need to. You know, I need to become uh, familiar with this tech so I could do that cool stuff as well. So I think that's always, even though you may not get everything in the conference talk, that might be a good way to kind of motivate yourself to learn these things and and uh, and get familiar with the tooling. Well, let's list a few of them. Um, so, so you mentioned some of Chris McCord's talks. Uh, I, I can remember some of the early live view talks, especially the one where he started talking about uh, live view as the stereotype is that it's inefficient and then he starts talking about i think it was the atomic trash can right so we keep building these things and keep throwing them away for every new connection and that was when everything kind of clicked for me in terms of 
you know, this isn't just frivolous. This could actually be um, efficient and, and just a, a great general purpose programming model for the web. But what are some of the other great conference talks and, and what did you learn from them? So I think we are obliged to always, I think it's, an, if we had a contract for this podcast, it would be in the contract that we men mentioned Sasha Jurich every time. But his talk about the heart and soul of Elixir or the soul of Erlang and Elixir, I never remember exactly what the title is of the talk, but uh, it's the, the talk I reference people to if I just want to sort of give them a little bit of excitement about the platform and the technical aspects of it because it so clearly covers the power of the beam and what the foundation is that we're building on. Then I remember that I started looking at Elixir conference talks around the channels and presence era. So it was before LiveView and I remember those talks, so I, I bet those were ElixirConf keynotes by Chris McCord. Uh, I remember those talks as, as good and, and inspiring. And then there were definitely nervous talks that got me, that got me really excited because I've, I had been playing a lot with Raspberry Pis and this seemed like a much nicer way of doing it than installing Raspbian. And it turns out it was even, like even back then, Nerves was miles ahead of the experience of, of uh, doing it in another way. And there you can see talks by Frank Hanleth, uh, Justin Schneck, and Connor Rigby. They've all, they've all done various talks on Nerves that have been real good. Uh, I'd particularly recommend Frank's talks. Uh, I don't remember specific ones, because it, it's been a decent while and it feels like there's always updates. Similarly to, to the Chris McCord keynotes, like those are partially worth going back to and partially you can always check the latest one to get, to get what's most exciting right now. Uh, so. I also really liked, um, there's one by Jose Valim in particular that I really liked. It was, I can't remember the title. I think it was Lambda Days where he was talking about doing things, um, you know, um, you know, using the enum module and that's, uh, you know, the upfront approach and then he used streams and then that's lazy and then you could use uh, Gen Stage and eventually Broadway and then that's doing things concurrently. And I think that was a really good talk. Um, you know, we'll put it in the show notes. But I think it was a really good talk in that it shows you how you can structure your applications from, you know, from POC. We, let's say you just want to use the enum module. And then let's say you need uh, some more performance or you've got a lot of uh, you know, throughput, how you kind of shift and you update this approach from you know, enum to stream to you know, Broadway or, or gen stage. So that was, a really good, uh, that was a really good talk. And I think it really highlights you know, some of the benefits of, of uh, the, the beam and, and the runtime that we have at our disposal. So that was, that was also one of my favorite talks. And I, I rewatched it every once in a while. Yeah, so that's a lot of the conference talks that, that are pretty influential. Are there some other ones, maybe some iconic talks that, that people talk about? I remember there was a talk that Jose gave at, um, it was at one of the ElixirConfs, and he, he had like almost a mic drop moment when he said, Elixir is done. 
And I thought that it was a really a fantastic talk because it was more of a signal that the the inner layer of Elixir is stable. And when when other developers saw that, it actually triggered this wave of innovation um, just one level up. And that was a pretty exciting talk from my perspective that I said, okay, um, what's he trying to accomplish here? That there's no more innovation that's going to come from Elixir? Well, far from the truth, what happened was the innovation started happening one level up. Uh, once again, Jose was, was thinking 10 moves ahead of me. And that's always been the case. Was that, was that the same talk where I think like his first slide, he was teasing about like a type system in Elixir and then like everyone was cheering in the crowd. And then like his next slide was like, no, we can that, pro that project. I can't, <laughs> I can't remember what talk that was. It was the ultimate, it was the ultimate trolling. It was, it was the best, but uh, I, I definitely echo that sentiment, Bruce. I, I am really happy that Elixir as like the core language got its stable features and it's not, it's not changing much. That, that makes me happy because then I'm not chasing like, you know, the latest spec of the language. I'm not trying to like rewrite, you know, existing code bases to conform to some, you know, you know, 10 dot something version of a language. All the exciting stuff is happening outside of it. And you could always count on that stability of that, that, you know, really, really tight inner core. So I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And it says to me something else. It says that the, the layering and the abstractions were good enough to actually make this cut. I mean, you could always have, have improvements. That was an important moment for Elixir. So I think that one of the things that we can agree with is that Elixir is a little bit ahead of its time in terms of the number of excellent books there are on, on the subject. And I say this not as an author, but as a consumer of great books in the Elixir space. And I want to plug Sasha again here um, with one of the, probably the best Elixir book that's out there, and that's Elixir in Action. And I think that what he does in that book is lays the foundation of the basic Elixir and then very quickly takes it up a level with, um, with gen servers and, and kind of the philosophy of how you build things, how you layer things, and what the core abstractions are. That book is, is really way underrated. Are there some other favorite books that, that you both have? So not much of a tech book reader. I actually came up with one more of the talks that, that definitely influenced me, and that goes into some more detail that I should mention. Chris Keithley uh, at ElixirConf EU in 2019 Prague, uh, building resilient systems with stacking. And I think this goes for most Keithley talks, but like distributed computing and building, actually dealing with systems design and figuring out how to make things work really, uh, like he, he's the type of person that picks up a paper to figure out uh, how to actually solve the, solve the damn thing. And I thought it was it was a real good talk, and it really gets into things where many sort of keynotes have to be slightly bigger picture. It can't be that nitty gritty. But what I will say uh, when it comes to tech books, like if you want to get deeper in Elixir, <clears throat> it's not just about reading books about Elixir because there are so many topics in Elixir that are bigger computer science topics. And I think one of the most useful books I've read to inform my lecture development has been Designing Data Intensive Applications 
is that Martin Kleppman? Uh, it is. That is a yeah. really good book. It's an absolutely fantastic book. I do not understand how we could go into that much detail about sort of databases and storing data and consistency without making it incredibly dry and boring. But it's it's not. I found it absolutely fascinating and mostly riveting throughout. So, uh, and that like distributed systems, data integrity, that's good stuff to have at the back of your mind anytime you're dealing with almost any application development, but particularly Elixir where you're very often dealing with distributed systems. You know, I think I want to point out something else that's happening is more and more authors are starting to go to a small format book. Alex, you've been involved now in two of these. You want to talk about what, what you did with building a weather station and also the next time around, the patterns book that you're building right now around OTP. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the the um, the Nerves Weather Station book, um, yeah, that was meant to be like a really focused, you know, how do I build X with, uh, you know, Elixir Nerves, that X being a, a, a full-fledged uh, weather station. And, um, you know, given that Elixir is you know, very, very much a full stack language, you could do embedded, you could do web backends, you could do web frontends. Um, you know, we kind of lean on Elixir on all of those uh, parts of the, the the project, and so you you run nerves on the Raspberry Pi, you you read a whole bunch of sensor data via I two C, and then you publish all that data to your Phoenix backend, and then we use um, Grafana to actually visualize all that uh, time series data that's stored in Postgres and specifically Timescale, um, and. Like initially going into the book, I, I mean, I thought we were going to break like you know, 150, 160 pages, but given how efficient it is to, you know, to get your job done in, in Elixir and, uh, and Phoenix and Nerves, I mean, I think the book was like just shy of 100 pages. And uh, like, I don't think we, we rushed the book at all in, in getting it out. So I think there's a lot, of, a lot of good explanation in there, but I think it just speaks to how efficient you can be uh, developing in Elixir. And so... Yeah, in, in one book, you write the, the embedded side, you write the backend side, and then you're also able to, to visualize everything. I think, um, you know, getting a, a tangible product and, and project out the door by the end of the book, I think really, uh, it, it's really rewarding, you know? Yeah, that yeah, was a think... ni nice and dense book. <laughs> it, it really covered a lot of ground without feeling particularly rushed. And, uh, I'm, I'm impressed it came in under, under 100 uh it was a good read and i think more of these small nerves project books would be absolutely fantastic i think the component shortage is a little bit of a spanner in the works there but i i hope it starts to clear up i was gonna yeah, say that's... the same exact thing the, my only regret is that you know uh you know bruce uh myself and frank didn't buy like hundreds and hundreds of sensors before you know the pandemic and the global uh shortage of, of stuff and then like just gave it out with the book for free <laughs> that's my only regret yeah it's funny so we we have the exact same problem with the binary clock but of course that book is coming a little bit behind and then frank can't leave well enough alone right he can't say you know there's there's a, a shortage let's just wait until that clears so he built this custom printed circuit board that plugs into a raspberry pi that <laughs> where, where you can we could do 
all of the binary clock programming, but all you have to buy is Raspberry Pi Zero and this this custom um, circuit board. So we're kind of working through the tail end of that, and I'm writing the chapter for for doing that as we speak. Um, it's funny, I'd already started the loop, and Frank had a Raspberry Pi, all the the connecting cables, which I, well, I didn't pack because I didn't think I'd, I would need. And this custom chip all waiting for me in a marina ahead of where I'd be, right? And um, so I pull in and it says, hey, this is what we're going to do the last couple of chapters with. And then this is what, what we need to do the review. Here's the, here's the code for it. Here's a live book that kind of uh, breaks it down blow by blow, uh, which can serve as the foundation of your chapter. And um, I just kind of looked at this dumbfounded and said, yeah, yeah, this is why Nervous is successful, right? <laughs> But a couple of things I think come out of that little experience. One of them is this idea of the short book. And we're seeing more of this because I think on the web content is king, right? But but also these small books are better for talking about focused and targeted technologies. And so we're starting to see these things as conversation starters with companies. And I know, um, Alex, you're doing very much the same thing with your OTP patterns book and Dashbit is doing a few books like that. They have their Ecto book. And then I think that there are a few other ones as well, but talk, talk a little bit about what you're doing with the um, OTP patterns book. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the idea with this book is after you've uh, you know mastered, let's say the, you know, the, the syntax of Elixir and you kind of understand what immutability is, uh, but you know, maybe you're a little hesitant or you don't fully understand or appreciate the, uh, you know, kind of the underpinnings of, of uh, you know, the runtime or OTP. This book is meant to kind of introduce you to, you know, how do you write your own teeny tiny gen server? How do you write like a little cron job gen server? Okay, cool. How do you add that to your supervision tree? What is a supervision tree? What are some of the, uh, you know, kind of like the restart strategies and stuff like that? And it, it, it's meant to start at that. And then kind of expand on that. So by the end of it, you know, maybe you could build your own, you know, worker pool and supervision tree. And uh, it's also meant to be practical. So how do you how do you use these tools in, let's say, a production app? So let's say you have a uh, um, an application that leverages Ecto and you want to run migrations, but you don't feel like writing a custom script or anything like that for running your migrations. You could very easily add a gen server that runs your migrations and then you know returns ignore at the end of init. And that's a pattern that you don't, you know, you don't see often, but when, when you see it in production, like, oh, that's ridiculously awesome. I don't need to worry about running my migrations. They just, you know, on app start, they just run. I don't need to add any other boilerplate or, or coordination. So the idea is, you know, after you've, you, you've mastered kind of the fundamentals, how do you take that, a, a, you know, a step, uh, a step further in a practical and kind of like pragmatic way, you know, things that you would actually use in a production application. You know, I think that we're starting to see published content, the, the forms of published content change. So, for example, this is worth more to you as a new business owner than, um, than having, having a book, right? So, Dashbit has seen the same thing with their book, right? And I think that you're also going to see shorter focus books in different formats, right? So, one, one of those formats is if you've ever spent that much time on Hexdocs, there's a ridiculous amount of published content there, both guide and reference type material, right? Elixir is very fortunate that Jose came from a Ruby on Rails type of, of ecosystem where there was tremendous value on, on things that make 
documentation easy to use and 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 powerful. And I think that that's that kind of gives Elixir people learning Elixir a little bit of a, a leg up. Yeah, I totally agree there. I mean, the fact that documentation is a first class citizen in the language. I mean, I think that's really evident when you go to Hexdocs. Like even for any of my projects that I publish on Hexdocs, it's kind of like a, a point of pride if the docs are you know beautiful, they're well laid out, um, you know everything has uh, you know type specs and and um, and function docs like, and I think that's something that you know perhaps you don't see in a lot of uh, other ecosystems. And like I know when you know, let's say I was doing like a Node or a PHP project, like getting docs or, or trying to you know, try to figure out how to use this thing aside from third-party tutorials that may be out of date was was a serious problem. Like that wasn't like a nice to have. That was a that was a serious problem sometimes. So I think the fact that docs are a first-class citizen and there's so much support for docs in the language, like uh, doc tests, and now we have those extra. I can't remember the name of the feature in, in Xdoc. It just got released where you can have like the the yellow and red and green banners. That's kind of like a like a warning or a or a hint or something like that. So I think I think the fact that we have this this amazing documentation, we see it manifested in, in a lot of the projects. Like the, the the Phoenix docs are absolutely beautiful. They go through deployment, they go through, you know, how to set up channels, how do you integrate live uh, view? I mean, these are these are tutorials and docs all in one, and it's amazing. And we're going to start to see, I think, um, another generation of code. So I think that there are traditionally two types of documentation, right? One of those types mirrors the structure of code pretty closely. You know, you have a you have a module, you have a module doc with it. You automatically generate that. You put it up with hex docs, and you tie it to a version of the code, right? So that's that's the integration of the package management, the build system, and the language. But there's another type of documentation that we typically see in the form of a book today that we're probably going to start seeing in different formats because books, let's face it, are difficult, right? It's books have their own version and software versions have their own versions. And it's it's tough to tie the pros and the, um, the code together because they're different components piled things, right? You know, the, the prose is probably some type of markdown and the code is probably some type of Elixir script. And of course, where I'm going is Livebook. And, and we're starting to see the very beginnings of, of Livebooks to, to, to tackle these topical things and of the infrastructure that's that's required to, to support them. Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, as part of the Elixir Patterns book that uh, Hugo and I are writing, Every chapter is going to have, uh, you know, a couple or a few live books that kind of complement that, and it's it's been a great experience because now, you know, in addition to having the book, you know, that might be you know two three hundred pages, but let's say you know you read the book and then like a couple of weeks later, a month later, you're like, oh, how how did I do that again? How do, how does that work? You don't need to go skimming through the book. You could just open up the live book, run the code sample. You could even play with it right then, you know, right then and there, and and get that uh, sample to fit your particular use case. And I, I think that's that's a really valuable thing. And I think actually with Xdocs, you could put like a little live book badge in there, right? So you can actually like open it up in your own instance. I haven't I haven't played with that feature yet, but I think that's I think that's a thing. That is the thing, and it's a it's it's really coming. I, I think that this is going to um, that that live book is going to be another tool that we're going to see not just for this documentation scenario, but also Lars. I think that you published a um, a live book article or a live book live stream on on teaching with live book. How was that experience? 
Yeah, so I did a thing where I pulled... So there's this open curriculum for learning Elixir, Elixir School, which Sophie has been involved with, I know. Uh, and is a really good resource. And I think that's, that's also a good place to point beginners that want sort of the step-by-step -step guide through the language. So I had a friend, or I have a friend, Mr. Blixists, <laughs> um, and he was doing mostly Python. He has a background in Haskell, but he hadn't done Elixir at all. And we figured it might be fun to sort of go through these very clear, basic uh, lessons on how to do specific things in Elixir and sort of talk through them. And to get a collaborative environment to do that in, we picked Livebook. And then I just pulled the markdown from the Elixir School source, put it in Livebook, made some slight adjustments for syntax so it would work in, in Livebook, and off we went. Uh, it was probably 10 minutes of prep <laughs> before each episode. And uh, I mean, that was, a, that was a very nice experience. We could just go through a section by section and like, okay, yeah, so this does that, this does that, and discuss what it did. And then he could try some stuff and see if he broke, see what, see what was an expected behavior and what was unexpected and see what different experiments did essentially like assignment to the left assignment matching to the right that kind of thing and this was early live book so <laughs> this was quite early on but yeah it was smooth and straightforward and i think i recommend like if elixir school folks have have the time and energy to do it uh, it would probably be good to make that material instantly transferable into live books because by default, it's written as something you would do in IAX prompt, and that's not exactly what Livebook needs. So there's some adaptation, but it's it's a really good way of sort of walking and talking through code. And I think Nerves is doing that exceedingly well, especially since Nerves has so many sort of finicky parts where you one user might need this, another user might need that. Uh, so things like Wi-Fi and uh, setting that up, like, oh, yeah, we have a live book that details that. Okay, but I just want to do some basic things, like the, the stuff I did for the Nerves Quick Start video. That was just like go into the system LEDs, uh, the basic system LEDs live book and go through it, and you can control the LED on the board. And there's a ton of different examples. Like some of them require you to have some hardware to set up, like a few resistors and a few LEDs, and you can do Blinky. And like a, a wide variety, but some are just recipes for like, oh, this is how you do that thing that you keep forgetting how to do, like setting up your Wi-Fi for the first time. But you you've been digging into Nerves with the with the binary clock book, Bruce. How has that been? Does that involve Livebook at all? Yeah, so it wasn't supposed to. <laughs> but we had the scenario where, Scope gosh, the, the world was out of parts, right? The world is out of parts. We got to have this, this scenario where um, you don't just have one part, but you have to have this combination of parts all available at the same time. So the best, the best way to do that was for an experienced 
um, doubly to to kind of build a custom board out of things that are um, readily available at, at the time and should continue to be. So Frank built this this custom hold board. Hold up, hold uh, up, hold up. Are you building a custom board? Yes, for, for the book? binary clock, for the binary clock. Am I or is Frank, right? And so, so there were a couple of pieces that were interesting about that, right? Um, the, the first one is that Frank built a custom board for a binary clock had it printed and, and shipped to me. But the second piece is that as you're building things like this, it needs you need to be able to experiment with very quick cycle times, right? And, and so by having this, this library that circuits that, that, um, that Frank built years ago, that allows you to interact with a, a broad number of nerve systems directly, and then just um, and then just run tiny little scripts to verify that all the chips on the board and and you know the the big one for us was a serial port interface. If they match the spec sheet, then you know you could start to uh, tailor the individual um, LEDs that are also on the board. And um, and then interacting with those one at a time and then in groups and then you can can start to lay out to tell this story with a live book and mixing in prose notes to Bruce as we're doing these things, make sure you bring these things out to, to the user, run this program and then oh by the way this sets one type of time but that's boring so let's do this animation. All this stuff was kind of laid out for me to stitch into the next chapter. And we're going to make, like like Alex says, we're going to make that available also to the people who want to want to try this binary clock project. That sounds wild. And and the cycle time for this thing is is huge, right? Because rather than building a full nervous project, everything is already burned, and all you have to do, all we're trying to do, is work with the core at this point, right? And and just like tiny little scripts to control everything to initiate and control everything. So the live book lets you experiment at the speed of light. You type it and you get a syntax error or it works and LEDs blink and that's it. There's something very special about poking around in a web interface and writing some code and then just running it and seeing something happen in the real world. Like I do not get sick of dealing with with nerves and hardware devices. It's just so much fun. I need to I need to do more of it soon. Yes, and then when you can when you can wipe out the friction, right? When you can wipe out that the whole round trip process as you're experimenting, that's where that's where the time goes, right? Uh, but when you could just open up that live book and then have all of your modules kind of ready for you, and um, when you could start and stop your gen server from that live book, and oh my goodness, it's a it's a wonderful experience. So we've talked about some of the things that can help you as you're learning Elixir. I would like to spend the last few minutes on some of the particular challenges that Elixir has that other languages don't. Right, like one of the obvious ones is that it's a functional language, and and how do you, how do you go about learning a functional language? How do you get somebody started um, making that making that initial change to run a functional language? Before I answer that question, I, the the talk about uh, LiveBook inspired me. Maybe I should read like write a little custom uh, uh, LiveBook firmware 
for the weather station and then have like uh, all the weather uh, data be plotted with Vega light. You know, that's that's something that just came to me. So I don't know, it might, you know, keep an eye on Twitter. Maybe I'll, I'll post some teasers out there. But to answer your question, uh, Bruce, yeah, I think depending on when you learn Elixir, I think it makes a big difference, right? Like if, you, if you've been doing OO for, you know, three, four, five years, shifting that mindset, I think becomes harder. Like you, you, at that point you're used to, you know, when I pass an object to a function, wherever I call that function from yeah, that, that object may not be the same anymore. I have no idea what's happened, uh, you know, due to, you know, pass by reference. I have no idea what's happened in that other function. You know, things may have been mutated. Things have been changed. You have no idea. Um, you know, using uh, getters and setters, like all, all these things that you kind of pick up as you're developing in OO don't necessarily apply, uh, you know, in, in a functional language like Elixir and Erlang. So I think depending on, what you've learned beforehand, that could be, you know, that could be something that really, you know, slows you down. Not to say that it's impossible, but it, 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 it requires a bit of a, of a mind shift uh, change. But once you, once you get that mind shift change, it, it becomes very freeing because now you don't need to worry about passing any data around. State is very explicit, right? State only exists within a process or, you know, you know all these immutable data stores in, in Erlang, like persistent term or ETS or something like that. But you probably aren't going to be using those anyways for a, you know quite some time. So until you actually need those tools, I think you've already fully appreciated why they exist and when to use them. So getting a handle on the fundamentals, I think, is, is super important and you know can't be skipped. Yeah. And so what do you call the fundamentals? So so one of the fundamentals I think is is concurrency because it is a little bit different dealing with concurrency in various different functional languages, right? Like, um, like Go has a very different perspective on the world than, than like on Elixir would. Um, but even thinking about concurrency at all is, is a big change. Yeah, so I would definitely echo the, the slight challenge of just grokking functional programming and I've recently stumbled into becoming a small consultancy instead of a freelancer. So I have four people I'm working with that were essentially beginners to, to development. We came out of a Swedish equivalent of a boot camp, and they're doing Elixir now with me. And I would say that the hurdle for them was probably lower than for me in the sense that they didn't have as many habits to break. And then on some of the more fanciful parts of it, I had more experience with programming itself and probably I probably extended myself much, much further in my initial attempts and did much wilder things, uh, good and bad, mostly bad initially. So yeah, I, I think there's a, an advantage to actually starting starting near functional. But when it comes to concurrency, I think that's always slightly an advanced topic and Elixir does not let you ignore it mostly. So if you're doing a Phoenix application, you can, you can just consider it single-threaded essentially. Or like your request comes in, you deal with it, you send a response. It's all sort of in a straight line. And most of the concurrency that happens is, is essentially 
just uh, your HTTP um, connection pool. Um, Cowboy does that for you. But the moment you want to, to do more or the moment you feel like you need a gen server or actually start touching that actor model, that's when you, that's when you need to start thinking about concurrency and suddenly you're dealing with that's this is what i think is one of the challenges with teaching elixir it's like there are at least three fundamental paradigms that you need to tackle one is functional programming which most are not trained into most developers are not trained into functional programming initially then there's the actor model and the, the entire sort of concurrency model and then there's OTP, which is its own sort of wild uh, place for full of distributed computing and computer science. Uh, and it's fantastic, but it's also unusual. <laughs> it does come with its its um, its on ramp, right? There's there's a there's a startup cost, and I would say probably with Groxio, um, our main business is becoming our professional training and lately since we've joined the loop it's been easier to organize classes for professionals to train one company train my company to to do elixir right or to um take the next step in elixir that's that's where we spend most of our time and i would say probably about 80 percent of our trainees have used elixir or even functional programming for less than six months. I think I agree with you that one of the hardest parts is getting into the concurrency. I don't think that I agree with you that you get a pass on the functional programming part, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes you do, right? But I still think that it is mostly an object-oriented world, especially when you're trying to build and hire a team that's not you know, raw experts. And that's something that the Elixir community is going to have to solve. But I hope that through through this this episode, you've gotten some hints at where to go to kind of start to take that next step and, and how to think in Elixir, how to how to, you know, with Sasha's you know, books and talks, um, what's what's the soul of this? What is the, you know, what is the non-trivial problem that you could solve that can have the attributes of Elixir programs? Um, how, do, how does Jose think about things like the flow of data and concurrency and the Elixir models um, in terms of innumerables and streams and gen stage and now Broadway? How do you actually uh, roll up information that's hard to take in and present it in ways that are friendly to, um, to beginners and, and intermediates alike, like the, like the small books that Alex is starting to put together? And how do you how do you structure data in live books? These are some of the things that new developers are going to be looking for as as they join Elixir. And I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what the answers are. I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you to our sponsors, Croxio, which is career fuel for developers. And talk to you next time. Bye. Thanks, everybody. I'm glad that we got this one in. Let's see who's on the schedule. And yeah, it says Alex on every one of them. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, I, I didn't realize I was taking this responsibility on. Lars, you're next.